Today's scripture reading is from John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew he would, what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, we're jumping back into John today. We, we took a little break. We finished up John 5 at Easter. And today we begin John 6. We'll be here a few weeks it's really one of the more interesting passages in uh, the Gospel of John. If you remember the thesis of John, kind of the purpose statement, John actually gives a nice purpose statement for the whole book at the end of the book in John 20. I'll just read it for you, but it says, Now Jesus did many other signs. This is John 20, 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay, so there's a lot of other stuff that Jesus did, but... Here's what I was doing here. These are written. My purpose in writing these is that so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John, throughout the whole book, is giving you a snapshot of the nature, the work, the character of Jesus so that you would believe so that you would come to know God, so that you would ultimately have life by believing in Jesus. There's an interesting little video that's been kind of going around the internet um, past couple of weeks. Um, it's a video of Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, he got a lot of attention a few years ago. He is a professor and a psychologist, but he started kind of pushing back against a lot of the, what I'll call postmodern norms or morals of the day. And um, he wrote a, he's written uh, some best-selling books, and, he, and he's definitely gotten a lot of attention for this. But this, in this particular video, Jordan Peterson's not a Christian, though he talks a lot about the Bible. He, he clearly respects 
the form, the form narrative of the Bible. He respects the order of the scripture. He, he sees that we need order in this chaotic world, and, and he looks to things like the Bible to give us this kind of order. But anyway, in this particular video, he was in a conversation with someone, and they were talking about Jesus, and he, he's overcome with emotion at one point, and he says, could it be, basically says, could it be that in Jesus, the objective world and the narrative world touch? Now, we believe in the objective world, right? The things that we can touch and experience and see and handle. But we also, even if you're a very secular person here today, <laughs> you believe in a narrative world. Everyone's living by some narrative. And the narrative, whatever it is, tells you what is good and bad. It tells you what's right and wrong. It tells you what's beautiful and true, right? It's these things that you can't really, like I can't, objectively put before you love, but I know love exists. I know that I love my children just as much as I know that this pulpit is sitting right here. This is objective world, that's narrative world, but I, I know that they both exist. I know that there are some things that are wrong and that there are some things that are right. I know those things. I know them those things to be absolute, but those are narrative world truths. And so really what, what Peterson does in this video is he says, could it be that in Jesus, the objective, he really lived in history and the narrative, this, this sense of God, could it be that they touch, that they come together? And he's overwhelmed with this. It's a powerful little video. He, he breaks into tears and he says, look, I, I think I believe this. It seems so plausible, but it's terrifying to believe. And Peterson, who's not a Christian, I think understands something that many Christians don't understand. The, the weightiness of this that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life, that, that, that by believing in him who came and lived among us so that you could know him, you can actually know the living God, the creator of the universe. That is a weighty thing. That is a daunting thing. That is something that will totally change you if you, if you really believe it. And, and really what John is doing in this whole gospel is that. He's presenting evidence for that. He's saying, I want you to believe this. I want you to see that the narratival and that the material world have come together and it's come together in Jesus and that you can know Jesus. And John 6 really puts this on display in a big way. There's a lot in this story. In fact, you know, sermon prep is so frustrating because my sermons are always so much longer than they'll, you know, then y'all give me to preach. But I've narrowed it down. There's three things I want to kind of think about with you today. First, the Passover. Secondly, the provision. And then third, the prophet. So let's look at the Passover. The last time we saw Jesus, he was in Jerusalem. Remember Easter, this is John 5. He's basically telling all the Pharisees they have no clue. These guys that have given their lives to study the scripture, he's telling them they have no idea what the Bible says. He, he's telling them that Moses will one day condemn them. The worst possible thing he could have ever said to them. And he's saying that if they really understood the Bible, they would have understood that it's about him, that it points to him. Now, we don't really know how they respond. John 5 kind of ends 
I'm guessing, you know, this is just, this is the Jason D's sanctified imagination here. They got mad at Jesus. Jesus realized, okay, it's not my time to go to the cross just yet. And so he got out of town and he went back up to Galilee where he did most of his ministry. If if you go with me to Israel next year, and I hope that many of you do, there's kind of two main places that you go and they couldn't be more different. One is Jerusalem, this kind of hustling, bustling, I mean, three major world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all come together. There's so much energy in the city. There's people from all over the world there. It's crowded, it's tight, it smells, not necessarily bad, but there's just smells everywhere. I mean, it's just a lot. The sense overload in Jerusalem. And one is Galilee, and they couldn't be more different. It's this serene little lake in the northern part of Israel. And actually, one of the things that you do there, it's called the Sea of Galilee. It's called the the lake or the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias is a town there. It's also called Lake Kinneret because it's shaped like a kinneret. That's the Hebrew word for lyre or harp. So there's a lot of different words that people use. It's all the same thing, Kinneret, Tiberias, Galilee. It's this lake. One of the things you do, you go on a boat ride, you go out in the middle of the sea and you can see about, it's really, it, sea is a deceiving word. It's really a lake. It's not even really a big lake. But you can see when you're on this boat ride about 75% of Jesus's ministry. You can see Capernaum. You can see this, the town where Peter was from. Jesus did so many things. You can see the region of the Gerasenes where Jesus cast the demons to, into the herd of pigs. You can see the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. You can see Magdala. You can see the place of multiplication, this place. You can see so many things, all these things that Jesus did. You can see where Jesus called the disciples to to be his followers. But here in this place, this, this, this special place is the place of multiplication. And, and, and actually, when you go there, there is an amphitheater. I mean, you can tell where you would go if you were going to look anywhere on this region to teach a large number of people. There is this natural, in the mountain, in the grass kind of amphitheater that just is there. It's just kind of a natural uh, geographical feature of the place. And so it's obvious that Jesus was there. And, and, it's neat, and it's still to this day not close to any of the cities. Capernaum's kind of a few miles this way. Tiberius is a few miles this way. And it's just kind of right there in the middle. This is where they are. He's with his disciples. They, all these crowds are coming out to hear him to teach. And it's the Passover. Now, I'll be honest. This is something I haven't thought of that much, even in thinking about this passage many times until this week. The Passover, the significance of the Passover. We get so distracted by the multiplication, but why was it so necessary for them to eat? It was Passover. Now, if you, if you remember, Passover for the Jewish people was like the 4th of July and Christmas kind of all rolled into one for us. It was a, it was a day of national significance. It was a national holiday, but it was also a holiday of great religious importance. It was a, it was a holiday where people remembered the Lord. If you remember the Passover came about, the people of Israel, the people of the Hebrew people had been in Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years and they'd become slaves in the land of Egypt and God sent them a deliverer. He sent them Moses and Moses came pleading with Pharaoh to let his people go. And there was all of these plagues, the series of plagues that came upon the Egyptians, but Pharaoh's heart was hard. And finally, God said, 
This is all in Exodus 12, if you want to read it. He said, I'm going to bring judgment on Egypt. And it's going to be judgment like they've never seen before. The firstborn of every family is going to die. But then he says to Moses, but you, the Hebrew people in Goshen, you know what you're supposed to do? You are supposed to feast. What a picture the Passover is. On one side, judgment, death in Egypt. On the other side in Goshen, feasting, celebration. You know, Jim Hamilton wrote a biblical theology. A biblical theology is basically a book that kind of says this is what's going on in the Bible. And he titled the book, and I think this is an interesting title. He titled the book, What is the Bible About? God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And you see this theme throughout the Bible. God displays his glory both in his judgment and in his salvation. And in the Passover, there's, there's really not a more clear picture of this. How is God showing his glory in Egypt? He's showing it to them. They have hardened their hearts against him, and he's bringing judgment. There's death. There's pain. They, they have crossed God. They have messed with the wrong guy. But meanwhile, amidst all this judgment, what? Salvation, feasting, a celebration for God's people. Not because the people of Israel were so righteous or so good, but, but because they were with the Lord, because God had mediated for them, because God was going to deliver them. In Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was feasting. In Egypt, there was death, God's glory being displayed both in salvation and in judgment. And so what you did, how you celebrated the Passover that they celebrated every year. You know, when, how do you celebrate the 4th of July? You know, you cook out and you do fireworks and how do you celebrate Christmas? You exchange presents, right? How you celebrated the Passover, what you did to commemorate it was you feasted. You had to feast. It was a reminder to you that God is a provider, that God is the God of provision, that God is the one who always takes care of his people. And this theme, feasting, as a sign of God's care and favor, you see all throughout the Bible. You know, think, about, think about the Exodus, right? The people of Israel are in the wilderness, a place of death, a place of judgment. What are they doing? They're being provided for day in and day out. They're feasting because of God's provision. When they went into the land, the promised land, they had to defeat their enemies. And what did they do when they, in the presence of their enemies there, after they defeated them, they feasted on the day of atonement, right? When, when they should have had judgment because of their sin, but God provided salvation and forgiveness for them by the blood of the lamb, what were they to do? They were to feast. Even Psalm 23, right? You know Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me. Where does God prepare the table? in the presence of my enemies. Amidst the judgment, the people of God celebrate, they feast. This is the idea of Passover. So do you see what's happening here in John 6? <laughs> They're in the wilderness. 
They're away from any sort of populace. They're out there in the field. And it's Passover. How are they going to celebrate the Passover? And the answer is, Jesus is with them. The true provision of God is among them. So that brings us to our second point, which is the provision. The Passover is a sign of God's provision in the midst of judgment, and Jesus is the ultimate provision. Now, I love how Jesus invites them in. Where are we going to buy bread? I love he asked them this. Where are we going to buy bread so that we can celebrate Passover, so the people can eat, so we can remember the provision of the Lord? Verse 6, of course, tells us, he said this to test them, for he knew what he would do. I can't help but think back to John chapter 5. Remember John chapter 5? Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you really knew the scripture, you would know that it's all fulfilled in me. And so it's kind of like he's saying to his disciples, it's the Passover. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see that it's all fulfilled in me? Do you really believe this? Where are we going to get bread? And I love Philip. Philip says he fails the test, right? He, he's just like the Pharisee. He doesn't get it. He says, Jesus, this look at this crowd, 5,000 men, maybe, you know, some people estimate 10, 20,000 people. Eight months wages, he says, 200 denarii, which would have been eight months wages. Eight months wages worth of bread would not be enough for even for them to just get a little bit. How are we going to feed them? Not the answer Jesus was looking for. You know, this story teaches us. This is a great story. I didn't mean for this to happen. I want you to hear this. We were just like, okay, we're going to do the little campaign then, and then we'll, you know, do the commitment day, and then hopefully the Lord will provide, and then we'll go back into John 6. I wasn't even thinking about John 6. This is the perfect passage for today. This is exactly what the Lord wants our church to hear, I believe. Folks like us, many of you, when you face a problem, you know, you're the kind of people that figure it out. You know, that you, you just are. You're, you, you, you figure it out. You, you say, okay, I'll, you know, I'm going to get the necessary education. I'm going to get the right people. I'm going to get the money in place. We can solve this problem. You're, you're, some of you are very powerful people. All of us at least know somebody that's pretty powerful. Now, a lot of you guys, I want you to know this, when you were younger, you had a true, genuine faith. You didn't have a lot of money. You didn't have a lot of influence. And, you, and, and there was a time in your life when if you needed something, you prayed. <laughs> and you had to trust the Lord. And you had to say, please, God, provide for me. Give me a job. Give me a spouse. Give me children. And now, you know what? For a lot of you, God has and here's the problem of that. When the Lord blesses you in these material ways, praise God, I'm glad he has. But here's the problem, is those material things can become your comfort. They can creep in and actually become the thing that you start to depend on. You used to seek the Lord. Now you say, you know what, I've got the promotion. I've got plenty of power. I can do this. Eight-month wages? <laughs> I actually have eight-month wages just sitting around. I can provide for everybody. I can do this. I can do this. I, you see, if you're not careful, when God begins to provide for you, gives to bless for you, the, the, that provision actually can sneak in and become an idol in your life. 
And what it can do is steal away your gospel usefulness and your gospel faithfulness. This is why, and I want you to hear this, old people, and when I say old people, I mean like anybody 35 or older, like all the old people here, right? This is why old people need to try hard things. And really the answer is harder things. When God blesses you, when God answers you, the answer is not to get comfortable in that blessing. No, it's to realize God is saying, now you have a greater stewardship. Now I have something else for you to do. Now I'm putting something else before you. Now I'm calling you to deeper stewardship, to deeper water. You know, Ben Washer and I always talk about this. When we, when we were in college, we both grew. We had very similar college experience. We both grew a lot in our faith. It was a wonderful time where the Lord was just showing himself to us. And, and it was relatively, for both of us, a very easy time of faith. We, we weren't like facing these huge challenges or these huge hardships. I mean, we were in college. And we always joke around today, you know, Lord, we wanted you to grow us, but please just do it like you did in Auburn, right? Don't, don't bring hard things. Like, grow us in the easy way, right, Lord? I think as I've thought about that, though, here's what's happened. When we were actually in college, we thought it was hard, right? We actually thought the challenges that we were facing and having to trust the Lord for were actual great difficulties. And the Lord was using those things to grow us. Now we look back on it. Now we've, we've got a whole skewed perspective. We're like, gosh, that was easy. Gosh, that was wonderful. Gosh, that was so pain-free. That actually is Christian growth. Don't you hear this? When the Lord grows you, when he provides for you, when he answers your prayer, the answer is not just to get stagnant there. No, it's, it's to continue doing hard things for the Lord. Old people, you need to do hard things. You need to do harder things than you've done before. You need to take on challenges. You need to trust Christ for things that are beyond you. You know, I'm so grateful for so many of the young people that helped to plant Christ's covenant, but I'm so grateful for some of the older people, the 50s plus, 60s plus, people that really took it. It was kind of hard for them. It was a challenge. The Lord has used this. This is the problem with natural success. Natural things can creep in and steal our face. They can become idols in our lives. Here's the question. What are you trusting God with in your life right now that's hard, that's impossible? This is why so many people miss all of Christianity. You know, if, if all Christianity is is just do a little bit more than the next person, well, then all you have to do is find a really bad person and say, okay, I'm good. But that's not. The, the, the message of the Bible is be holy as I am holy which of course none of us can do, it's impossible. You have to trust the provision of the Lord. So Philip misses it. Andrew, Andrew I think kind of gets it. At least sloppily he gets it. Look at verse eight. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said, well, there's a boy. <laughs> he has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many? 
I mean, it, you've probably heard this sermon, if any of you have around church before, you've heard this passage preaches. It's just his lunch. It's a couple of, no, these aren't like loaves of bread. They're just a few little kind of pieces of bread and some fish. This is the little boy's lunch. And I love Andrew. This is all I can find. <laughs> can you do something with this, Lord? This is the best I have. I think this story teaches us what true faith really means. The disciples aren't totally passive, they're active. Jesus invited them into his work. He wanted them to be a part of what he was going to do. You know, there's obviously a moment they started looking around and saying, okay, well, what do we have here? Should we go over to Capernaum? And I love Andrew, he says, well, this is all I can find. Let's bring it to Jesus. This is what D.A. Carson calls, it's, a, it's one of my favorite little phrases, grace-driven effort. There is a kind of Christianity that says everything depends on you. There's a kind of Christianity that says everything, that says nothing depends on you. But what we see here and what we see in Scripture over and over again is that God works, God works through the, the real efforts of his people. God uses his people. Andrew brings this pathetic little meal. He says, well, there's this. This is all I can find, Lord. And Jesus says, great. Now just trust me. Have the people sit down. Just trust me. Which is, I'm not naturally full of so much faith. You know, my wife is. Paige is just full of faith easily. This is something I've had to grow in. This is something the Lord has had to show me over and over again. It's one of the reasons I am so grateful for Christ's covenant, for this little church. I mean, I mean, a year ago, I was just thinking about this. We were on YouTube. Blake and I are thinking like, oh my gosh, the economy, this whole church is about to collapse. And today the Lord's provided this building. Now this hasn't come without sacrifice and work and generosity. It's been hard, but the Lord has done this. And here's the deal, the Lord wants to do more. We just have to keep trusting him. We just have to keep bringing him <laughs> our pathetic little meals and saying, all right, Lord, what can you do with this? Andrew brings this little meal and Jesus says, I'll take it from here. You just, just have everybody sit down. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, you know, he probably gave the, the great Hebrew prayer of thanks, great are you, Lord, the ruler of the universe. We thank you for giving us bread from the earth. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Are you trusting the Lord to provide? Or really, are you only trusting yourself? Are you trusting the Lord to provide? Are you going to the Lord in faith, the great provider? Or are you really only trusting in yourself? You know, Martin Luther the great reformer was one day caught in a rainstorm. 
And it was such a terrifying rainstorm. It was a thunderstorm. It was lightning and thunder. And he was caught out on the road. And he said to God in a prayer, he said, God, if you save me from this, I'll commit my life to the monastery. I'll go to the monastery. And somehow Luther made it out of there. The, the rains let up. He didn't die. And he was good on his word. He went to the monastery and he was out to, to pay God back, to earn a place with God. At Page and I in 2017, we got to go to this monastery there in Erfurt, Germany. And we got to see where Luther slept. It, it really was just a rock. He would sleep on this rock. And we're looking at this stone. He didn't have a blanket. He didn't, I mean, he had a little sheet maybe. Thinking, man, how do you do this in the cold German winters? He wouldn't eat his whole meal. He worked harder than all of the other monks. In fact, that they resented him because Luther just did so much. He wouldn't sleep. He just was so diligent. It was so fearful all the time. His soul had no rest. He did not say it as well with my soul. He would go to confession and he would confess all of these little sins. He'd say, look, I had a bad thought. I had a resentful thought against another monk. Or when I was working the other day, I didn't work with all my might for the Lord. And finally, the, the priest that he was confessing to said to him, Martin Luther, go burn a village, you know. Go do something actually bad. Go do something that is worth confessing. What, what's this? What's all this about? Like, I didn't work mightily as unto the Lord. But here's the deal. Luther understood something. He understood the holiness of God. He understood that, that he was not holy in deed or in thought. He had no place with God. And he lived in torment for that until one day when he rightly understood Romans 1.17. And it changed his life. And it is this, the righteous... Those who make peace with God, those who find the provision of the Lord, the righteous live by faith. And it set him free. And this will set you free. You know, I want you to hear this. Look, if sin is tormenting you, if guilt is tormenting you, you're probably on the right path. You're probably understanding that there is a holy God out there. You, you know your own soul. But hear this, you'll never be able to set yourself free. You'll never be able to set yourself free because you're not righteous. But God in his grace has given you a savior, Jesus, who is righteous. You know, John Bunyan, who very similarly was wrestling with his own righteousness much later, was set free. He read Luther. He read Luther, and then he had this thought. He, he says it in this very succinct way. He said, one day I was passing into the field, and this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. I saw with my eyes of the, my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not save me. He lacks righteousness for my righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. My righteousness is in Christ. 
It was right there before God. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous better or my bad frame of heart that made me righteous worse for my righteousness was Christ Jesus himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he says this, right? We just sang this, right? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations fled away and I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Bunyan says, like Luther saw, my, I saw where my righteousness really came from. I saw who really provided righteous. It wasn't me. It wasn't my righteousness. It was the righteousness of Christ. The righteous shall live by faith in him, the one who really provides. I just have this measly little meal. <laughs> it couldn't feed this crowd if it tried. It's just a measly meal, but I will give it to you, Jesus, and watch you work. This is real provision. This is saving faith. Is this the kind of faith you have? Are you, are you trying to run to Capernaum and say, no, I got to get more. I got to get eighth month wages. I got to do it myself. Are you really willing to say, look, this is all I have. Jesus can do so much more with it. I'm willing, I'm willing to push it to him. I'm willing to look to him. I'm willing to give it to him and watch the true provider provide. This brings me to the last point, which is the prophet. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. The people were understanding something of Jesus. Deuteronomy 18 talked about this, this great prophet, the one who would come in the way of Moses, a prophet like Moses, that it was coming. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. The prophet speaks for God to the people, and Jesus did this. He brought the word of God. He brings the word of God. He brings the provision of God. The people were starting to see this. Verse 15, <coughs> one of the most amazing passages in the whole Bible Perceiving then that they were about to come and make him king by force, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. That's, that's an amazing passage. I wish I had a whole sermon on just that passage. I'll go ahead and tell you, if, some, if, if, if the city of Atlanta says, hey, we're going to come make you king, I'd probably like, okay. <laughs> yeah. If I have to, I'll do it. The thing is, is they were, they were understanding something of Jesus. He is the prophet. He is the king. Now, a different kind of king. They wanted a king to take up a sword and defeat the Romans. Jesus, as he said later in John, my kingdom is not of this world. He had a different kind of kingdom, but they were recognizing something. He was the prophet. He was the rightful king, but he was also a priest. And this is what they didn't see. A prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. A king is one who rules and reigns on behalf of God. But a priest is one who speaks to God 
on behalf of man. A priest is one who intercedes for someone else. And this is what Jesus has come to be for us. A prophet, yes, a king, yes, but also a priest, one who intercedes for us. Jesus has come to provide for us. How? Because he takes on our need. He intercedes for us. Jesus took on our need. This is what the life of Jesus is all about. He comes to identify with us so that he could take on our need and give us his abundance. How does Jesus provide bread to the needy in the wilderness? Don't you see? It's because when Jesus was in the wilderness, he had no bread. He went without bread so that he could give bread to the hungry. How does Jesus provide righteousness for the sinner? Don't you see? It's because on the cross, he took on our unrighteousness. He became our sin. He took on our sin and gives us, provides for us his perfect righteousness. This is why Martin Luther and John Bunyan can say, ah, my righteousness is right there in heaven beside God. I don't have to fear. I can be set free. He's a priest. He makes an appeal to God for us. It's as if Jesus went to his father and said, give me their sin so that I can give them my righteousness. And he did. Jesus provides. This is what Martin Luther, who understood this, called the great exchange. Jesus has provided righteousness. He's provided salvation. He provides for us in every way. Won't you trust him? Won't you look to him? Are you going to be like Philip and say, nope, let's go over to Capernaum. I've got some things stored up. I think I can take care of this. Or are you really willing, almost embarrassingly so? You know, this is why Jordan Peterson is wrestling with this. Because to go to Jesus with two fish and a few little loaves of bread is kind of embarrassing. <laughs> to receive the goodness of God. It's like, why? <laughs> why would God be so good to us? What, what in my life has merited this? The answer is nothing, but yet God extends this grace. That's called grace. You haven't earned it. You haven't earned it. You have to, you have to be okay with that. This is why some of you will never believe you can't accept grace. You can't just receive the gift. You can't just say, well, God does love me. You have, to, you have to go into Capernaum and say, no, I got this one. I can provide the food. Jesus says, no, just give me your little pathetic lunch. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm not just going to give everybody a bite. Everybody's going to eat so much. They're never going to have a meal like this. In fact, we'll be taking up the scraps at the end. This, this, means, this is leftover. This is what God does with your life. When you look to him, when you trust him, when you, when you realize that you're broken before God, when you realize there's nothing you have to give him, and you just say, look, this measly little life that's full of sin and ruin, will you take it and give me a new life in Christ? And he will, and he does. Let's pray. Father, would we be the people that can actually sing, not just because we're here in a worship service, but would we be the people that can actually sin, sing, my sin, 
Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more because of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Would we be the people that are willing to come with you with our measly little lives and just say, will you do something with this, Lord? And watch him work. Give us this faith, Lord. Free us of ourselves. Empty us now, Lord, so that you can, so we'll turn to Jesus and be filled by him. Give us this faith, I pray. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Well, I want to conclude our service today by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. If you're a believer, if today you're sitting there and, and, and what I was saying resonated with you, you said, yes, yeah, I know. Hey, I know. I get what Andrew did. I was half embarrassed to go to Jesus with my little life, but I did and I believe that he loves me and I know that he's, he's changed me, he's forgiven me. I don't have to fear judgment. And I know that I'll be one with God because of what Jesus has done. If that's your story, if that's your life, then as our deacons come forward, I invite you to take these elements. We're gonna celebrate this meal together, this, this, this renewed Passover meal. Now, if that's not your story, if, if you're still kind of figuring this whole Christianity thing out, if, if maybe what I said today left you more confused than it did clear, then you know, here's the deal. I think what, today is the day for you to just not do this, to not take this meal. This is a meal for people that are following Jesus and know that they're following Jesus. So as the elements are passed, you can hold your hand over your heart or you can just you know, kind of put your hands up. Nobody will think you're weird for that. But the Bible actually says that if you eat and drink this meal in an unworthy way, in a way that you're not trusting in Christ with, that, that it actually incurs judgment. It actually divides you further from the Lord. So I do just want to give you that warning. But if you're following the Lord, take these elements as they're being passed and hold on to them. And we'll celebrate the taking of them here in just a few moments.